Hi, this is Lily, and I'm a member of the Beacon Church. Welcome to our podcast. We'd love to meet you, so come visit us on Sundays at 9.30 a.m. or 11.30 a.m. at the Viscardi Center at 201 IU Willits Road in Albertson, New York. Now, Beacon is a non-for-profit, and if you shop Amazon, you can support the work at Beacon by selecting the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. And a small portion of every purchase will help move our work forward. Remember to shop at smile.amazon.com and select the Beacon Church of Long Island as your supporting organization. Thank you and hope to see you soon. Welcome to our second week of the series that we're calling Other Hard Questions. We, we are asking the, the difficult questions, the ones that most people are asking, whether they're vo- verbalizing it or not. Questions like, why is it that the small candy bars are considered the fun size candy bars? Can somebody explain that to me? How is a square inch of Snickers bar considered the fun size? Uh, this is now, for, by the way, going to be my response when somebody calls me short. I'm just going to say I'm fun size. Uh, <laughs> but seriously, today we're, we're tackling a, a very difficult question, which is, hasn't science made faith obsolete? And the thinking behind this is that thousands of years ago, when we couldn't explain the natural phenomenon of the world, we had to come up with an explanation. So we said it was supernatural causes, and we came up with these myths and these gods and these fairy tales to explain the universe. But now we have science, and we have physics, and we have chemistry, and we can actually explain all of these things. So we don't need faith anymore because we can know things now. Uh, the late Christopher Hitchens, he says, religion was the race's first and worst attempt to make sense of reality, and it was the best the species could do at the time when we had no concept of physics, chemistry, biology, or medicine. It's taken us a long time to shrug off this heavy coat of ignorance and fear, and every time we do, there are self-interested forces who want to compel us to put it back on again. And this is a growing sentiment in the world that that we don't need faith anymore because we have science, we have empiricism. And with that, there's this mindset that over here with science, you have the educated, you have the intelligent, you have the the people that are thinking critically, and over here, you have the ignorant sheep that are still clinging to these religious myths. And it's a, a difficult question to answer, but it's an important question to ask. Is this true? Has science really made faith obsolete? And we're going we're gonna to tackle this, but I, I just want a quick disclaimer about the message because it's going to feel a little different than a usual sermon at Beacon because we're going to race through some uh, things and I had to cut out more than I was able to keep in this message. But uh, I will tell you that uh, if, if you're new to Beacon and you're a Christian and you're looking for a regular sermon, this is going to feel a little strange because we're going to get farther and farther into the message and you're going to be like, we still haven't gotten to the Bible. I just want to say, we're going to get there, all right? Please be patient, bear with me, because whereas normally we would start with Scripture and kind of build out from there, we're actually going to start with nature, and we're going to build up, and we're going to, in the end, see how Scripture uh, kind of pulls all of these pieces together. So if you're, you're nervous about that, we're going to get there. Please be patient. Uh, but there's a few questions we need to ask along the way if we want to know if modern science has made faith obsolete. And the first question, is there actually a conflict between faith and science? 
are these two mutually exclusive? And the answer is quite simply no, for a couple of reasons. One, historically, there's never been any conflict between faith and science. In fact, the Christian faith was the breeding ground of modern science, and scientists like Galileo and Kepler and Bacon and Newton, all of these guys were devout Christians who understood the, the relationship between Christianity and science, and, and institutions like Princeton and Harvard and Yale and Brown, all of these started as Christian institutions as well. There's been always been a relationship between faith and science, and that's still strong today. That in every area of science, there are Christians that are at the top of the field in top positions at top universities. In, in fact, in the, the last century, 65% of the Nobel Prize winners identified as Christians. Not just identified as people of faith, as Christians. So the men and women who are, are like be, making some of the most influential contributions to physics and chemistry and economics identify as people of faith. We can't say that faith and science are in competition with one another. In fact, this is what Alistair McGrath says. He, he's a, a professor of science and religion at Oxford. He says, the idea that science and religion are in perpetual conflict is no longer taken seriously by any major historian of science. One of the last remaining bastions of atheism which survives only at the popular level. See what he's saying is that in pop culture, there's still kind of this understanding that like, oh, there's faith and then there's science, but nobody who actually knows the data and is doing the research would agree with that anymore. It's a myth. But there's another reason why faith and science aren't in conflict, and that's because everyone has faith, even scientists. In fact, you ask any scientist and they will tell you what we know about the universe is so small in comparison to what we don't know about the universe. And the more we learn, it, it just opens up more questions. We realize how little we know. And to say that science will tell us everything we need to know about the universe isn't a scientific statement. That is a faith statement. It's a reasonable statement, right? That's important to distinguish. It, it's reasonable, but it's a faith statement. You can't prove that. And there's a lot of assumptions that we have to make in order to even do science. For instance, we all assume that our, our minds are perceiving reality and interpreting things accurately. But you can't prove that. Like, you, we can't prove that we're not in the matrix right now, that this isn't a simulation. Now, it's reasonable, it's reasonable to say, no, we're not in a simulation, but we can't prove that. And we have to make, a, a, there's a whole slew, and I, I don't have time to list them all, but there's a whole slew of assumptions that you have to make in order to even do science that you have to take on faith. So there's no competition between faith and science. These two have to go together, right? But where is the conflict? Because there is a conflict, and we see it, that there, there's empiricism, and there's the, the people who subscribe to atheism, and then there's the Christian or theistic mindset, and there, there seems to be butting heads a lot. So where is the conflict? I want to look at three major conflicts, all right? And the first one, the first one, I think is super important to touch on, is there is a conflict between reasonable faith and unreasonable faith. There's a conflict between faith that actually has evidence to back it up and sheer blind faith. And there are a lot of people who claim to be Christians that have blind faith. They have no reason for believing what they believe. They might have grown up in it, and that's all they've ever known, and they've never questioned, they never thought about these things, and anytime they're challenged about their faith, they just dismiss it out of hand without actually dealing with some of the difficult questions, and there, there's this mental laziness that's not only unhealthy, 
but it's also not Christian. It's not loving God with our whole hearts. And Mark Knoll, he's a uh, a professor of history, uh, particularly history of the Christian faith. He says, the scandal of the evangelical mind is that there's not much of an evangelical mind. Ouch. An extraordinary range of virtues is found among the sprawling throngs of evangelical Protestants in North America, including great sacrifice in spreading the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, open-hearted generosity to the needy, heroic personal exertions on behalf of troubled individuals and the unheralded sustenance of countless church and parachurch communities. Notwithstanding all their other virtues, however, American evangelicals are not exemplary for their thinking. And they've not been so for several generations. Now, this is not, this is not somebody on the outside uh, making these claims. This isn't an atheist accusing Christians of being idiots. This is a, a devout Christian who loves Jesus, and he loves the church, and he loves Christians, acknowledging that when he looks at the data, that it, it doesn't paint a great picture. Oz Guinness, he, he backs this up. Oz Guinness is uh, another brilliant mind and a, a devout Christian and also, fun fact, the great, great, great grandson of this Guinness. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm serious. He really is. Uh, uh, but he says, evangelicals have been deeply sinful in being anti-intellectual ever since the 1820s and 30s. For the longest time, we didn't pay the cultural price for that because we had the numbers. We had the social zeal and the spiritual passion for the gospel But today, we're beginning to pay the cultural price. And you can see that most evangelicals simply don't think. And it has always been a sin not to love the Lord our God with our minds as well as our hearts and souls. And we have exerted this with a degree of pietism and pretending that this is something other than it is. That is sin. Evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to think Christianly and to develop the mind of Christ. And these, these are tough allegations, but, but there's truth to this. And, and we have to own up to where we've fallen short, the ways that maybe we have just relied on blind faith and we've dismissed things out of hand because that isn't loving God with our minds. And so there, there is a part of this that we have to own up to. They can't blame the atheists and say they're painting this picture because we, we've kind of done this. And I, I think that's important for us to start there. There is a difference between reasonable faith and unreasonable faith. And as Christians, we should have reasonable faith. The second conflict is between materialism and the metaphysical. Because obviously, there, there are plenty of thinking Christians involved in science and academia, and the conflict still persists. And, and this conflict between materialism and the metaphysical, uh, when we talk about materialism here, we're not talking about like shoes and handbags, all right? It's not that kind of materialism. Materialism in this context, it means that the only thing, uh, for a strict materialist, the only thing that's real is what is physical and tangible and measurable, what you can see with your eyes and you can touch with your hands and you can taste with your mouth. That's real. But anything that is metaphysical, anything that you can't see or touch or taste or measure is unreal. It's an illusion. So God is an illusion. It's just a construct that we made up. But there's some serious ramifications with this. And this, this is the kind of m- the mindset of the new atheists, like uh, the late Hitchens and Dawkins and Francis Crick and Sam Harris. These, these guys are proposing this sort of strict materialism. But there's really serious epistemological and, ontolo- and cosmological ramifications to this, starting with the epistemological ones. Because if, if only the material world exists, if that's the only thing that's real, then love isn't real. It's not. It's just... It's a figment of our imaginations kind of there to help us propagate the species. Morality isn't real, right? 
There's no objective morality. There's only things that benefit us and the species, but there is no real right and wrong. Now, just, I, I don't want to be misinterpreted uh, here. I'm not saying that atheists are inherently immoral. That's not what I, There's plenty of atheists that are super kind, loving, generous people. That's not it. I'm just saying that morality at this point isn't objective. You can't say anything is evil. It's just not beneficial or it's not preferable. Furthermore, human rights aren't real. You have no endowed value. These are just constructs of the brain. And, and you even take it to the nth degree, you aren't real. So your mind, your consciousness, your thoughts and memories, everything that you identify as you, just a, a figment of your brains, uh, it's just a construct of your brain to help perpetuate the species. And this isn't me saying, this is what they claim. This is Francis Crick saying, the astonishing hypothesis is that you, your joys and your sorrows, your memories and your ambitions, your sense of personal, and identi personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated mole molecules. That's a tough pill to swallow. Uh, and there's some real issues with that because if your mind isn't real, right, if it's just this imaginary construct, how can you trust that anything your mind is telling you is real? Like, how can you know any of it is true if it's just synapses in your brain firing? And this is what Alvin Plantinga, the great philosopher, says. He says, from a naturalist point of view, the thought that our cognitive faculties are reliable would be at best a naive hope. It's as likely, given unguided evolution, that we live in a sort of dream world as that we actually know something about ourselves and our world. You see, there's, there's real epistemological issues with trying to say that the world is only the material stuff and you have to write off anything that's metaphysical or supernatural. But there's cosmological issues as well. And they were really introduced with the Big Bang Theory. Uh, not the TV show, the actual theory. Because for a long time, for a long time, secular scientists, they believed the universe always existed. It had no beginning or end. It just always existed in this constant, steady state. And that was fine. And then all of a sudden, they found out the data shows the universe had a beginning. And this really bothered a lot of secular scientists because it sounded a lot more like in the beginning God created the world than they were comfortable with. And, and there was this other issue because everything that has a beginning, everything that has a beginning has something that moved it, something that caused it to begin. Oh, I accidentally hit my note thing. Uh, so everything that has a beginning has an inciting action, something that moves it. Like you had a beginning. You didn't just spontaneously come into existence. There, you were born and something caused your birth. And because there are children here, I won't say what that cause was. Uh, and I know you probably don't want to think about that either, but you know what caused you to come into existence. There's always a cause for everything that has a beginning. And before the universe, before they, they thought the universe had a beginning, they were fine. It's just always here, but now that it has a beginning, what caused it to be? And the materialist says, nothing. No one made everything for no reason. <laughs> Which could be true, right? Or, or is it slightly more reasonable that if time and space and matter all had a beginning, that something or someone that exists outside of time and space and matter initiated all of that and set it into motion. And that maybe that, that 
someone or something that exists outside of time and space and matter also is responsible for consciousness and things like love and morality and justice and that these things aren't imaginary, that they're real, which requires more faith. These realities uh, combined with the, the fact that the universe is so finely tuned, right? It's not just that the universe is here and had a beginning, it is so remarkably finely tuned. It's crazy. Stephen Hawking says that if at one second after the Big Bang, if one second after the Big Bang, the, the expansion rate of the universe was off, if it was off by one part in 100 quadrillion, which is a big number, there's like 17 zeros there. If it was off by just that much, the universe would have collapsed back in on itself. That, you know, that if the gravitational force was different by one part in 10 to the 40th, for, you know, I know there's only a couple of you that can't imagine what that's like. Uh, I'll give an illustration. So imagine that the universe, all right, the universe, there's a measuring line that goes from one end of the known universe all the way to the other end of the universe. That's the gravitational force. If it was off one inch in the span of the whole known universe, there would, be, uh, there would only be either red dwarf stars or blue giant stars, which means there would be no yellow sun which means Superman would never get his powers. <laughs> also, there would be no life in the universe. One inch over the span of the universe. Could it be, could it be that maybe these things happened accidentally? Sure. This is the, the materialist mindset. It says, well, yeah, you know, it, of course the probability of all these things happening accidentally is statistically impossible, but... But if you imagine that there's an infinite number of universes, then surely in an infinite number of universes, there has to be one that has the right properties for us to be here. And since we're here, then it's possible and so blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's possible, like sure. But what requires more faith? That or that someone outside of time and space and matter who has the intelligence to be able to create a world and the power to create a world that is so nuanced and so complex that it actually provides life and love and justice and morality, which requires more faith. See, it's not unreasonable to believe that God is doing. In fact, uh, David Bentley Hart, he says, this is a philosopher from Notre Dame, he says, I do not regard true philosophical atheism as an intellectually valid or even cogent position. In fact, I see it as a fundamentally irrational view of re reality. Furthermore, all right, listen to what Richard Lewontin says. Okay, this is an evolutionary biologist. He's an atheist, all right? So he's, he's a materialist. So this isn't like somebody on the out, this isn't a creationist accusing him. This is like, this call's coming from within the house, all right? He says, we take the side of science in spite of the patent absurdity of some of its constructs, in spite of its failure to fulfill many of its extravagant promises of health and life, in spite of the tolerance of the scientific community for unsubstantiated just-so stories, because we have a prior commitment to materialism. It's not that the methods and institutions of science somehow compel us to accept a material explanation of the phenomenal world, but on the contrary, that we are forced by our a priori adherence to material causes that create an apparatus 
of investigation and a set of concepts that produce material explanations, no matter how counterintuitive, no matter how mystifying to the uninitiated. You hear what he's saying there. He's saying, he, he's acknowledging that as an atheist and a materialist, he is, is putting blind faith in these material explanations, even if they sound completely absurd because he, they refuse to accept the possibility of God. That's not reasonable. What requires more faith? The third conflict is between evolution and creation. And this is a super popular one. The idea here is that the Bible says the world was created in six days, and science says that the world was created over millions of years through natural selection uh, and the evolutionary process. And we see that these seem to be mutually exclusive. So science has disproved the Bible. We can no longer trust the Bible. Not only that, science has explained the complexity of life, so we don't need God to explain the complexity of life. But there's a, a... few problems with this. Uh, one, and, and some of these I have to go through so fast. I wish I could spend more time. And I'm going to stay up here after if anybody has questions and wants to like ask them, uh, go for it. But one, when it comes to Genesis 1 and the six-day creation, there has never been Christian consensus on how to interpret Genesis 1 and whether or not to take it literally or figuratively. And it, it's a very strange genre. Uh, it, in some ways, it reads like narrative. In other ways, it reads like poetry. And so people, for, way before Darwin came on the scene, people struggled to understand how to interpret Genesis 1. So you don't have to take Genesis 1 literally to take the Bible seriously. All right. I'm not saying you, you can't take Genesis 1 literally. I'm just saying you don't have to. John Selhammer, he's one of the leading Old Testament scholars today. And this isn't like a liberal scholar trying to you know, fit the text to what we see. This is, he's a conservative Old Testament scholar. He says, many Christians have felt torn between an allegiance to the Bible and a recognition of the findings of modern science, a terror that is neither necessary nor helpful. When Genesis 1 and 2 are understood as Moses intended them to be understood, nearly all the difficulties that perplex modern readers instantly vanish. Right? There's, you don't have to take Genesis 1 literally in order to take the Bible seriously. All right? I'm not, and again, I just want to reiterate, that doesn't mean you can't take Genesis 1 literally. It doesn't mean that I don't. I won't tell you how I take Genesis 1. So, ha. Uh, but, but you don't have to. Second issue with this is, uh, how well do you know about the evidence for evolution? Because uh, when it comes to evolution, if you like, ever doubt it in front of people, you get laughed at and like, well, this is you know, ignorant uh, creationism. However, there's like, some really big gaping holes in the theory that they thought would have been filled in by now, and they're not. And again, I'm not saying that evolution isn't true, uh, I, I won't tell you what I believe about that one either because I don't think it, it's that essential to the conversation. But listen, to this is Stephen Jay Gould, all right? He's an atheist, an evolutionary biologist at Harvard. He said, the extreme rarity of transitional forms in the fossil record persists as the trade secret of paleontology. The evolutionary trees that adorn our textbooks have data only at the tips and nodes of their branches. The rest is inference, however reasonable, not the evidence of fossils. Darwin's argument still persists as the favorite escape of most paleontologists from the embarrassment of a record that seems to show so little of evolution. All right? So this is, this is an evolutionary biologist from Harvard who subscribes to evolution, is admitting there's not as much evidence as they thought they would have found by now. So could it be that evolution isn't quite the explanation? Maybe. Maybe not. It does explain things. But either way, don't let this 
be your reason for pushing God out of the picture because it doesn't have to be. There's enough here to suspend doubt on this issue to see is God real in other ways. But there's, there's a bigger issue. And that's the, this idea that evolution has rendered the need for God no longer necessary. Like, he, because we have this explanation of how a single-cell organism can, through evolution, become this complex human being, we don't need God anymore. And the evolutionists and the creationists both agree, all right? They both agree on one thing, and that's there is the appearance of design. It's clearly, it looks like it was designed. The creationist says, well, that's because God designed it. The evolutionist says it's because of natural selection. Both are reasonable, but they both, or the, the evolutionist has one big problem, and that is first life. Because you take that simple, single-cell organism, and what we know of DNA and RNA and epigenetics now, the amount of information in that single-cell organism is it could fill a thousand Encyclopedia Britannica volumes, all right? I just have to pause for a second, come over to the Fusion Kids. So before Wikipedia existed, <laughs> uh, there were these things called uh, encyclopedias, and they actually just printed Wikipedia into books, and they were sold door to door, and uh, by the time you got them, they were already out of date. Uh, so, yeah. So imagine a thousand of them filled with this information. Bill Gates, he says, human DNA... Human DNA is like a computer program, but far, far more advanced than any software ever created by Microsoft. Apple might have had a different take on that. But, <laughs> but Hubert Yaki, who worked on uh, the Manhattan Project, he says, it's important to understand that we're not reasoning by analogy. The treatment is mathematically identical. So when we talk about filling a thousand volumes of an encyclopedia, we're not saying it's like a, a thousand volumes of random ones and zeros that just kind of got strewn out there. No, it has the same level of coherence and, in, uh, and information that needs to hold together in just the right order as an encyclopedia would be to make sense. It's the same level of detail. Right? If you were wandering through the wilderness and you came across Arches National Park, you'd look at it and be like, man, that is so cool. It looks like it's engineered. Nature is awesome what it can do. But if you were wandering through the wilderness and you stumbled on Mount Rushmore, you would not say, nature is so cool. Look what it can do. Because one screams, it screams of intelligence behind it. And, and DNA is, uh, there's just no way around it. Something had to put this in here. And, and the issue with DNA is it's, it's not that you can, if you tore one page, one page out of that 2,000 or that 1,000 volume encyclopedia, it dies. It's irreducibly complex. You can't make it any simpler. It's at its simplest form. And you, you mess with it even just a little bit and it dies. So it can't actually like mutate over time. It can't get to this place without starting this way. It screams of a designer, and this is the point that so many have said, all right, I give up. Sir Fred Hoyle, uh, he was a Nobel laureate, he, he says the common sense interpretation of the facts is just a super intellect that has monkeyed with physics as well as chemistry, and he says there has to be a super intellect. He still wouldn't concede God, so he said it was aliens, which <laughs> only delays the problem. Anthony Flew, he was uh, uh, an atheist, an outspoken atheist for like 50 years, and, and back in 2006, he came to this conclusion. What I think the DNA material has done is that it has shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinary, diverse elements to work together. What requires more faith? 
in this setting. There's a, a scientist, Francis Collins. He led the Human Genome Project. So if there's anybody who knows about human DNA, uh, actually nobody probably knows more about human DNA than Francis Collins. No one's like ever lived. He's like the guy. He's currently the head of the National Institute of Health. And I, I wanna just share with you his story. Uh, when I went to college and those discussions in the dorm late at night about religion uh, began to occur, I had no particular reason to attach value uh, to a faith system. It had never been something I was familiar with or had internalized at all. And I assumed that any religious feelings that anyone held must be on the basis of some emotional experience, and I didn't trust those, or on the basis of some childhood indoctrination, uh, which I felt I was fortunate to have missed. I loved the experience of learning about the human body and all of the components of that, and I particularly loved being introduced to genetics. But then I ended up in, in the medical school curriculum sitting at the bedside of patients with diseases. This was no longer an abstract study of molecules and organ systems. These were real people. And one afternoon, one of my patients, a wonderful elderly woman, much like a grandmother, uh, who had very bad heart disease. Uh, she had a particularly bad episode of chest pain uh, while I was with her. She got through it and at the end of that explained to me how her faith was the thing that helped her in that situation. She realized that the doctors around her weren't really giving her that much help but her faith was. And after she finished her own very personal description uh, of that faith she turned to me and I had been silent and she looked at me quizzically and she said what do you believe, doctor? And ultimately, I had to admit to myself that her question had made me realize that I had arrived at an answer to the most important issue that we humans ever deal with. Is there a God? And I had arrived there without ever really looking at the evidence. And I was supposed to be a scientist. If there's one thing scientists claim they do is to arrive at conclusions based upon evidence. And I hadn't taken the trouble to do that. I was greatly assisted uh, by a pastor who lived down the road who I went and asked about all this and who gave me a copy of C.S. Lewis's wonderful book, Mere Christianity. Because here was an Oxford scholar, a prodigiously developed intellect, who had traveled the same path. Within those pages, I realized for the first time that one can come to belief on a rational basis and that in fact, given the many pointers that one sees around oneself in terms of the universe and it having a beginning and its fine-tuning in terms of the way in which all those constants that determine the behavior of matter and energy seem to have been set just in a certain very precise range to make life possible uh, and many other things including my beloved mathematics and why they actually work anyway to describe the universe something that makes you think the creator must have been a mathematician that brought me then to the person of Jesus Christ as a person who was historically extremely well documented. That was news to me. I thought Christ was as much myth as history and I realized after reading more about it, this was a historical figure upon which we have a great deal of evidence for his existence and his teachings and even his rising from the dead in a literal way. That day at uh, my patient's bedside started a journey for me, a journey that I was reluctant uh, to begin, but I felt I needed to, a journey that I thought would result in strengthening my atheism, 
but to my surprise, resulted in my conversion. I, I think we can say with some level of certainty that science isn't the problem. It's not that science is preventing anyone from coming to God. There's just too much evidence that points in that direction that gives us a reasonable explanation for the existence of God. So what is it that obstructs faith? If it's not science, what is it? And I, 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 if you're here and you're skeptical and you're you know, kind of keeping God at arm's length, maybe it is your stories like Francis Collins that you, you actually haven't examined the evidence, that maybe you've kind of just heard some sound bites and you made some assumptions along the way. And, and maybe, for others, maybe... You just don't want there to be a God. (laughs) Maybe for some, it's not that the idea of God is so far-fetched, but it's that the implications of a real God are too far-reaching, and you don't want that involvement in your life, not in your universe. Thomas Nagel, he's an atheist philosopher at NYU, he admits this. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want him to be, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. The 17th century philosopher Blaise Pascal, he says, people almost invariably arrive at their beliefs, not on the basis of proof, but on the basis of what they find attractive. And here, we find, guys, I told you we get there. We finally come to scripture because this is what the Bible has been saying all along. In Romans 1, it says, people suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, this power that was able to set the world into motion, his divine nature, the intelligence and the wisdom and the the love and the beauty that was all behind this, these things have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. See, God's nature and his, his power has been on display from the beginning, but our tendency is we want to suppress these things. We want to suppress the truth about God because it's not convenient if there is a God. It's much easier to say, you know, oh, I, I can't explain the complexity of the universe. Well, there, there must be a multiverse, or I can't expl- explain the complexity of, of humanity and the mind, all that. Well, it's just, it's got to be evolution, and I, I can't explain all the, the, the things that we're, we're dealing in the world and the, the mind and the feelings and all of that. Well, it's just got to be materialism, and we, we take these big ideas and we start to compress them down, and we pack them in, because if you can make the truth about God small enough, if you could suppress it then you get to be in control. And you can throw that in your bag and you get to still lead your life. You get to be in charge and you get to take these things wherever you want to go and you have all that autonomy. But if God is real, he's not gonna fit in your suitcase. Dawkins, in, uh, an inter- or, sorry, in a debate, he said, God can't possibly exist because the, the, the universe is so complex The universe is so complex that if God made the universe, he would have to be even more complex than the universe, and that's too big. Yes! (laughs) Yes, now you're getting it. He's that big. He doesn't fit in our suitcase. God, he's more like the cruise ship, right? You You can't wrap your minds around this, and you can't lead the way. You can either get on board or or stay on the shore, and that choice is yours, And it's scary because if you get on board, you don't know where the ship is going. (laughs) 
And you don't know if you're going to like that. You lose control. There is a, there's a sense of your autonomy that you're, you're giving up and you're relinquishing, and that's scary. I was talking to a friend of mine who's not a Christian, and we're doing this series, and so I asked him, what are your objections to faith? And he says, I, I don't have any. I don't have any questions. It all makes sense. I just, I just don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to change my life. I don't want to do anything differently. I like being in charge. And maybe for you, maybe for you, you've been kind of keeping God at arm's length because you don't like the ramifications that if he's real, he gets to call the shots. And I just want to, I want to say, will you, will you be willing to just search? Will you open yourself up to the possibility that maybe there is a God? Because it's true, you, you don't get to lead the way, but, but think about this for a moment. If you know the person who's driving the boat, it's okay. You don't have to know where it's going. Because if you know that it's this God who created the cosmos, who has this power and this wisdom and this brilliance and this beauty who created the cosmos, but he also was willing to sacrifice his son for you, as Paul says in Romans 8, how will he not also along with Jesus give you all things? And I don't want you to take my word for it. I don't. I don't. I want you to be able to look into this yourself. And I want to encourage you, if you've been keeping God at arm's length, would you, would you just give him a chance? Would you open yourself up to the possibility that he exists? And we have Alpha starting on Tuesday. This is a great place. It's a free course. It's a place where you can just ask questions. You can talk these things through. You're not going to have anything shoved down your throat. You don't have to agree with any of this stuff. It's a place to just, just investigate some of the evidence. And for those of you who are Christians, who already believe there's a God, uh, I want to ask you, are you willing to keep searching as well? Is it possible that maybe you've been lazy in loving God with your mind? And I want to encourage you to take up the challenge to keep studying God. And we, we have this book, The Problem of God. Turns out we sold almost all of them in the first service. Sorry. Uh, but we're going to get more. You can also get this yourself on Amazon. Uh, but this, this is a great place to start where you could say, I'm going, to, I'm going to investigate. I'm going to learn. I'm going to grow. I'm going to study the creator and I'm going to refuse to, to be lazy or apathetic in my, my thinking so I could see the grandeur and the beauty of our amazing creator. Let me pray for us. Father, it is with great humility that we come before you, recognizing that you are the creator of the cosmos. This universe that's so huge and that we get to now even talk to you or relate to you is incredible. But, but even more so, God, that you would be willing to send your son to take on our, our human flesh, to suffer and die for us, God. It's just, it's incredible. You're incredible, and we love you. And I, I pray for everyone here that you'll open their hearts and their minds to search and to know you and all that you have for us. God, we love you, and we trust you with all these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.